CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is the Bill Press Show <laughs> live at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Just what we need. One more Democrat announcing today that he is running for president. Yes, the third presidential candidate from Massachusetts this year. And yet another white male Democrat running for president. I'm talking about Congressman Seth Moulton from Massachusetts. And what do you say? Hello, everybody. Here we go. It is the Bill Press Show. On this Monday, April 22nd, so good to see you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Hope you had a great Easter weekend. Uh, we were able to celebrate uh, the Feast of the Resurrection uh, yesterday. Uh, and um, whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian, Passover as well. So uh, happy, be belated, uh, happy Passover and happy Easter. Uh, and now we go into uh, another big news week here on the Bill Press Show with Congress coming back in town and lots on the agenda and a great big uh, case in front of the Supreme Court to decide who is going to be counted this year in the or next year uh, in the census. I guess it's after 2020 in the census, 2021. Uh, who will be counted? Will it be everybody or just American citizens? Big question. Uh, at any rate, it's good to see you today as we join you from our studio on Capitol Hill, join you online, on the radio, and on television, and look forward to hearing from you what you think about all the news of the day. Uh, such as it is, lots of big stories we'll be covering, including that uh, Supreme Court uh, hearing coming up this week on the census form and the uh, attempts of the Trump administration to put a citizenship question on the census. Uh, Elizabeth Warren shaking up the 2020 race by calling on Democrats in Congress to impeach the President of the United States. Uh, and it turns out that Donald Trump, who bragged about having the greatest memory of all, uh, turns out to have uh, no memory at all when it comes to uh, asking 
very important questions from the special counsel about what was going at the White, on at the White House in response to the Russians' attempts to influence the election some almost 30 times where he says, I can't recall, I don't remember, I don't recollect, da, 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 da. Hmm. It's a very selective uh, memory. Uh, so we have uh, lots and lots of stuff to uh, talk about. Uh, a couple of the stories that um, do not necessarily make the headlines uh, today, uh, by the way, there is a, uh, uh, you know, we've talked about this before, uh, 911, uh, it's so important. It saves so many lives. And sometimes, though, uh, people use it for the wrong reasons. Uh, the latest case I saw over the weekend, uh, this was out in Michigan. Uh, a five-year-old boy was uh, staying with his grandmother, and his grandmother uh, fell asleep, uh, was taking a nap, and poor little kid was hungry. So he called 911 and asked whether um, they might be able to <laughs> help him get some McDonald's. Um, the operator did tell him 911 is not the number you call for McDonald's. Uh, it's not the proper thing to do to call 911 and ask for McDonald's. Um, but the the uh, dispatcher uh, did then notify the police, and a police detective, a police deputy, on his way home from work, stopped at McDonald's and uh, got a little McDonald's for the uh, for the kid, which probably uh, was not a good idea because. Um, <laughs> then the kid's going to think he can call McDonald's anytime his grandmother uh, takes a nap. Um, and uh, if you think uh, that we don't need some uh, reform on the gun safety front, consider this. Governor of New Jersey pointing out that it costs $10 in Jersey City to get a dog license. It costs $2 to get a license to own a gun. <laughs> don't you think we might... Uh, <clears throat> Reform the law there in Jersey City, in the state of New Jersey, just a little bit. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, hey, what a big switcheroo from denying any contact at all with the Russians. The Trump administration now says, Rudy Giuliani, the president's personal lawyer, says, hey, What's wrong with taking information from the Russians? Anybody would do it. What do you say? Boy, is that a 180 degrees. Hello, everybody. Here we are on a Monday, April 22nd. Uh, so good to see you today. Thank you so much for joining us. It is the Bill Press Show. And that's us. That's me. That's you. We are uh, coming to you live from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, and our studio on Capitol Hill right down the street from the United States Capitol building where Congress will be uh, slowly making its way. You know, they never rush in. Uh, <laughs> it's not like they have to report to work at 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock Monday morning. They'll be here sometime late this afternoon, early this evening. They check in so they get paid for a whole day, and then they will um, resume their work tomorrow, presumably, such as it is. Um, at any rate, Congress, uh, Washington, filling back up again was kind of a uh, empty over the weekend. But wherever you are, wherever you happen to be, I hope you had a wonderful Passover uh, Friday and Saturday and a great Easter Sunday uh, yesterday and are ready to tackle the news of the week today as we join you online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. 
as we join you nationwide on Coast to Coast on Free Speech TV and on the radio. We're looking at you statewide in Indiana on Indiana Talks and uh, out in the greater Chicago area on the wonderful WCPT, the big, big progressive voice of Chicago. Yes, breaking news this morning. Uh, Seth Moulton, congressman from uh, Massachusetts, announcing he is jumping into the already crowded field for president in 2020. By my count, he becomes, check, correct me if I'm wrong, the fifth member of Congress to run, uh, joining uh, Tulsi Gabbard, Tim Ryan, John Delaney, uh, former congressman, I don't count him, Seth Bolton. Um, wait a minute, there is one more. I'm down here somewhere. Hmm? No, better work, former congressman. Um, here he is, Swalwell, Eric Swalwell from California. Right. So, Tim Ryan, Tulsi Gabbard, Eric Swalwell, John Delaney, Seth Moulton, five members of Congress now running for president. He, uh, Seth Moulton, May may be best remembered or worst remembered. Now, he's the guy that led the fight uh, not to elect Nancy Pelosi as speaker after Democrats picked up 42 seats in the midterm elections. How did that work out, Mr. Moulton? <clears throat> and not so well. They couldn't even get a candidate to run against her. Nobody would stand up, but he was leading the so-called revolution. Um, he now becomes the also the third uh, person from Massachusetts joining Elizabeth Warren, Democrat, and William Weld, Republican, to announce that they're running in 2020. Um, I, you know, good luck to everybody, but I think he is a little bit too late to the feast. Um, my guess is that uh, he will never be able to even get up enough support. Uh, the 1% or the 62,000 small donors to make it into the first debate. Uh, like Eric Swalwell, I think he's wasting his time, but hey, the water's fine. Jump on in. Uh, Seth Moulton, he will be appearing uh, with Rachel Maddow this evening on MSNBC and then going off to some of the early uh, early uh, primary states, uh, such as it is. Yep, more, most of the talk over the weekend, of course, most of the news over the weekend and on Sunday shows yesterday was relating to the Mueller report and still reaction to the Mueller report. Um, uh, Rudy Giuliani making the most news, perhaps. Again, remember, the position from the Trump administration from the very beginning was that they did nothing at all, have no context at all with the Russians. Donald Trump saying over and over again, no context with the Russians, nobody... No, but not me. Nobody in my administration talked to the Russians. We know that was just a great big fat lie. It's been proven true over and over and over again um, with Michael Flynn talking to them, Jeff Sessions talking to them, Carter Page, George Papadopoulos, Donald Trump Jr. with the meeting at Trump Tower, on and on and on. So now they've totally switched. Now, now the, uh, the, the official word of the uh, Trump White House is, Oh, of course we talked to the Russians, but who wouldn't? There's nothing wrong with it. Here's Rudy Giuliani, Giuliani was on CNN yesterday, State of the Union, with uh, Jake Tapper saying, now, personally, I wouldn't do it. 
I probably wouldn't. I wasn't asked. I would have advised just out of excess of caution, don't do it. But, but for those who did, hey, what the hell? Any candidate in the whole world in America would take information negative from a foreign source from a hostile foreign source who says it's even illegal who says it's even illegal yeah i mean that is so outrageous right wait a minute a foreign adversary trying to interfere it is against the law for a foreign adversary to interfere in our democratic process and our election process and for anybody else if the Russians or the Chinese or the Brazilians or whomever try to contact them with the dirt on the opponent that they had stolen from the opponent's campaign, the first thing we do is call the FBI. Instead, the first thing the Trump people did was call a meeting with the Russians and get together with the Russians. So again, there is more and more of this evidence that, that comes out. And by the way, and, and that's, that's the thing to remember about the Mueller report which I think most people are finally starting to see. Okay. Okay. So they did not find evidence of a criminal conspiracy in terms of contacts with the Russians or collusion. Mueller never reached a conclusion about obstruction enough to indict the president, but he did detail in great detail 10 different times when Donald Trump did try to obstruct justice. So even though the Mueller report does not say you're a crook, you're charged with crimes like they do with Paul Manafort, you're going to jail, the Mueller report is in no way an exoneration of the president of the United States. It finds there were multiple, multiple, some 100 cases of contacts with the Russians, and it finds there were multiple, multiple, some 10 detailed cases of obstruction of justice. It proves, as Adam Schiff, we quoted him the other day, said Congressman Adam Schiff, that the president's actions were dishonest, they were immoral, they were uh, unacceptable, inappropriate, and just plain wrong. So it's absolutely incorrect to paint the Mueller report as giving Donald Brush, Donald Trump a clean brush, if you will. Um, so, and uh, I think Congressman Elijah Cummings said it best over the weekend where he said, okay, now we've seen the Mueller report. Now the shift is up to the United States Congress, Elijah Cummings. The Mueller document has now left us with a roadmap to go forward. Uh, I think he basically said to us uh, as a Congress, it's up to you to take this further with regard to obstruction and, uh, the, and other matters that might come up. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so speaking of the Mueller report, da 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 da, here it is. Here it is, baby, in my hot little hands. Uh, I got my own copy, and you know, everybody's saying, Where'd you get it? From UPS, believe it or not. The UPS, local UPS are just up the street here. I got an email from them saying they were going to print these up if you wanted a copy. Just, I mean, I had to pay for it, but uh, at any rate, 25 bucks for my own copy of the Mueller report. So you know what I did Easter weekend? Mm-hmm. Yep, I've been I've been going through this Mueller report. It's amazing. It is first of all, uh, <clears throat> those of you watching on television can see there are, there's some blackouts. <laughs> sometimes entire pages, or they'll have like start a sentence, and then it's all the rest of it is blacked out. So you kind of have to do some guesswork uh, now and then. 
but it, there is devastating stuff in here. Just I'm gonna, yeah, here's another here's another example of a <clears throat> pages blacked out. But from what is in here is no doubt, no collusion, no collusion. Wait a minute, wait a minute. It says here uh, up front all kinds of different different attempts on the Russians to um, to get in touch with the um, with the Trump campaign. And the report says right here on page 33, the Trump campaign in total, the Trump campaign affiliates, different people related to the Trump campaign, promoted dozens of tweets, posts, and other political content created by the Russian intelligence agency. So they were sending them to the Trump, and the Trump was retweeting all of, the, all, all of these things. It, it, it says that flat out here uh, in the campaign. And then in the in the report, then it starts talking about the people who were in contact with the Russians. The Trump campaign showed interest in WikiLeaks release of hacked materials throughout the summer and fall of 2016. In debriefings with the office, former deputy campaign chairman Rick Gates, the rest is blackout. Paul Manafort, who would later become campaign chairman, the rest is blacked out. Michael Cohen, former executive president of the Trump Organization and special counsel to Donald Trump, told the office he recalled an incident in which he was in candidate Trump's office in Trump Tower. And the rest is blacked out. Uh, but you see, they keep they mention all these people in the Trump operation who were getting information from the Russians, passing it on, going to meetings. Um, how about this? Here's page 54. According to Gates, Rick Gates, deputy campaign manager, by the late summer of 2016, the Trump campaign was planning a press strategy, a communications campaign, and messaging based on the possible release of Clinton emails by WikiLeaks. They knew the, the Clinton emails were coming. They knew they were coming from WikiLeaks. They knew WikiLeaks got them from the Russians. They were planning a press strategy, a communications campaign, and messaging based on that. It's all right here in the report. So again, for Kellyanne Conway and others to say there's nothing in the report that suggests any collusion, BS, it's all just outlined here. That's in volume one. And then you get up into volume two, and it's, it talks about, among other things, all those instances of obstruction of justice where uh, the, the, I think the most notable one is when, and it's all outlined here, starting on page 113, where the president calls the White House counsel, Don McGahn, on two different occasions, calls him at home and says, you've got to fire or make, get, get the acting attorney general, uh, uh, Mr. Whitaker then, to fire Robert Mueller, and the way to say so, the the argument that he gives, Trump gives him, is that Mueller once belonged to one of Donald Trump's golf clubs. So therefore, that was a conflict of interest, and because of that conflict of interest, they had uh, Mueller couldn't do his job, and he had to be fired. And Don McGahn says, "I'm not going to do it." He didn't tell the president that. He just said to himself, "I'm not going to do that." 
Uh, I'm not going to put up with this total uh, SH, if you know what I mean. That's what he told Reince Reince Priebus. He went into the White House, packed up his office, told Reince Priebus he was quitting. And Reince Priebus talked him into staying on board. And then it's all detailed in the report here. Um, They have an Oval Office meeting, and Donald Trump says, because the New York Times had reported now that Trump had asked him again to do this, uh, Donald Trump told McGahn to go out and tell the New York Times that the president never told him to fire Mueller. And McGahn refused because he said, it's not true. You did. I'm not going to tell the New York Times that. Uh, so McGahn comes off as a hero on this. But uh, uh, my point is, read the report. or Read the excerpts that you can get from the report. Tons of collusion, tons of evidence of obstruction of justice right here in the report. Uh, And Adam Schiff has made this point over and over again. I've made this point over and over again. Just the fact that the report doesn't say the president committed a crime. And remember, Robert Mueller reaches no conclusion on that report because he says his hands were tied because the Department of Justice internal rules don't allow the indictment of a president. Uh, But just because there's no conclusion of a crime committed here does not mean that the president did nothing wrong. He did lots wrong. Now, the big question is, what do we do now? Adam Schiff, again, yesterday was appearing, was on um, this week with uh, George Stephanopoulos on ABC, ABC rather, who says, uh, well, impeachment, we're going to have to talk about whether we go down that road. An impeachment is likely to be unsuccessful. Uh, now, it may be that we undertake an impeachment nonetheless. Uh, I think what we are going to have to decide as a caucus is, what is the best thing for the country? More on impeachment in just a minute. But Adam Schiff goes on to say uh, the last thing is this is is fake news. Kellyanne Conway and the president of the United States called this fake news, disputed that these facts were even facts. We now know from Bob Mueller they were facts. They were facts. And Adam Schiff saying, yeah, you think Nixon was bad? This is even fact- worse. The fact that a candidate for president and now a president of the United States would not only not stand up and resist Russian interference in our election, but would welcome it, goes well beyond anything Nixon did. Well beyond anything Nixon did. Uh, And as Adam says, there was plenty, uh, uh, Congressman Schiff, I should say, uh, plenty of collusion and evidence of it everywhere you look. I've been very clear over the last uh, year, year and a half, uh, that there is ample evidence of collusion in plain sight. And I use that word very carefully because I also distinguish time and time again between collusion, that is acts of corruption that may or may not be criminal, (laughs) and proof of a criminal conspiracy. Uh, And then the other thing that's documented here in the the report um, uh, is Donald Trump's very convenient uh, lack of memory about key events and uh, key decisions made. Um, with relation to the uh, to the Russian interference in the election, remember this is a man who uh, has bragged Donald Trump that he has one of the great memories of all time, quote unquote. He also bragged about he has even the world's greatest memory. <laughs> Well, uh, remember, if Donald Trump refused, his attorneys wouldn't let him sit down with the uh, special counsel for a very good reason, because Donald Trump would lie. I mean, you can't talk to him for a minute without getting a lie. Imagine all the lies he could tell in two hours. 
Um, so instead, they agreed that he would answer questions in writing. Uh, 27 times in his written answers to the, um, in the special counsel, he says, uh, using several different formulas to make the same point, I do not remember. I do not recall. I have no recollection. I have no independent recollection. I have no current recollection. This is Donald Trump. Uh, he said he couldn't remember that anything about that meeting on June 26, in June 2016 at Trump Tower. He didn't remember being, in to being told in advance of Russia hacking of Democratic emails. He didn't remember anything, basically. Uh, and then he uses this, this phrase. Um, okay, imagine Donald Trump. We hear Donald Trump all the time. Okay, I want to read you this sentence. Could you imagine any way Donald Trump could himself have said this in response to the special counsel's written interrogation? Here's the sentence, quote, In the course of preparing to respond to your questions, I have become aware that the campaign documents already produced to you reflect the drafting, evolution, and sources of information for the speech I expected to give, probably, on the Monday following my June 7, 2016 comments. Donald Trump, he couldn't read that sentence, let alone pronounce it. And that was part of the written response to the, uh, to, to the special counsel. So the whole thing is just a total, total joke. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the greatest memory in history. Uh-huh. Well, what's going to happen next? Congress is going to hold its hearings. Uh, Donald, I mean, um, the chairman, House Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler, said over the weekend that he is going to call before his committee, Judiciary Committee, um, both special counsel Robert Mueller. Mueller will appear. Uh, he has to appear or he'll be subpoenaed to appear. He's just a private citizen today. And we remember last week, Attorney General William Barr said he's got no no problem with Mueller appearing. And and Chairman Nadler is also going to call Don McGahn, the former White House counsel, who refused on several occasions to carry out the president's orders. Otherwise, the president might have succeeded in obstructing justice. Uh, and with both um, Mueller and Don McGahn appearing before that committee, um, we're going to find out a hell of a lot more. So that brings us back to the question of impeach. And I know uh, Elizabeth Warren was out there over the weekend. Here she is. Uh, she, she, she said, look at the Mueller report. Democrats have to now start impeachment hearings in the House. Here, she, she's really the only one of the 2020 candidates to make that flat-out call. Here she is uh, talking to a crowd over the weekend. For me... This isn't about politics. This is about principle. And that's why I've asked uh, the House to start impeachment proceedings against Donald Trump. So. She goes on to say we've all got to be held accountable. This is about accountability. And it's about the relationship between the President of the United States, Congress, and America. And... What happens here if Congress turns away and says it's okay to try to block an investigation into a hostile foreign power and an investigation into the president's own wrongdoing? 
So there she is issuing the call for impeachment. Uh, Some articles of impeachment we know have been introduced by Congressman Al Green from Texas, Congresswoman Maxine Waters from California, um, uh, Brad Sherman, Congressman from from California. Uh, Democrats have to make that decision. Uh, Here's my advice. Don't do it. Don't do it. Look, and I'll tell you why. There's no doubt, first of all, that Donald, in my mind, no doubt that, read the report, no doubt that Donald Trump has committed impeachable offenses. No doubt he is unworthy of the office of president of the United States. But I think we have to accept one, and I know a lot of Democrats disagree with me on this, but I think we have to accept one basic reality. Impeachment ain't going to happen. Sure, they can get the votes to impeach him in the House. It'll take a long time. It'll divide the House. It'll divide the country. It'll tie up the House and and mean that no nothing else will get done. We've seen this before. We saw it with the impeachment, of the Clinton impeachment. The whole legislative agenda Democrats wanted to do on climate change, on voting rights, on gun safety and other issues will just get pushed to the sidelines while everybody's focused on impeach, 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 impeach. And there is no freaking chance that the Senate will vote to convict. None. Period. I mean, we've seen these Republicans. They're chicken, you know what, right? They have no backbone. They've never voted to oppose Donald Trump on any major issue, especially after this Mueller report that does not find, does not come to a criminal conclusion. These Republicans are not going to abandon or turn on Donald Trump in the Senate. It's just not going to happen. So we would go through the next year and a half of that bloody torture and accomplish absolutely nothing. And there are two, so, and there, that doesn't mean we don't do anything. To me, there are two other great opportunities for Democrats to get after Donald Trump and go after him mercilessly and remind the American people just how much damage he has done and how bad he is. Number one, all these hearings in the House, the Senate Judiciary Committee, the Intelligence Committee, the Oversight Committee, there are some five or seven House committees that have scheduled various hearings on various wrongdoings of the Trump administration. Those are great forms for exposing everything this man has done wrong. So we've got two opportunities. One is these multiple House hearings with some very capable people in charge. And God knows lots of ammunition to look into. And then the 2020 campaign with now 20, I think it is, with Seth Moulton getting in today, 19 or 20 Democrats going around the country, informing the people of just what's going on with the Trump operation and how damaging it is and how dangerous it is dangerous it is to the American people. So that's, to me, that's the answer. The answer is not to waste this time with impeachment, which ain't going to happen, but hold these hearings, run an aggressive, vigorous campaign against Donald Trump, and then beat the hell out of him, clobber the hell out of him and his whole gang, and send Trump and Trumpism back to Mar-a-Lago forever in November 2020. Impeachment, it's attractive, it's attempting. Uh, I think it's the wrong way to go. It's not going to happen. Uh, You can disagree if you want. Your comments are always welcome on Twitter, at BP Show. But I think Nancy Pelosi is right in holding the line, saying don't go wild on this impeachment stuff. Focus on the hearings. Focus on the 2020 campaign. And with that, Hey, you know, we seldom talk about uh, foreign policy here on the show, but we're going to take a break in the next half hour. 
uh, and welcome to the program to talk about what's happening in the Middle East, particularly uh, relations between Israel, uh, the Israelis and the Palestinians, Bibi uh, Netanyahu just getting reelected. So the Vice President of Political Affairs and Strategy for J Street, Ben Schneider, joins us here in the studio. Coming up next on The Bill Press Show, good to have you with us Monday, April 22nd. A quick break. We'll be right back. This is The Bill Press Show. Hello, friends and neighbors. Good to have you back here on uh, this Monday, April 22nd. Uh, Again, uh, hope you had a blessed Passover and a blessed Easter as well. Friend of mine told me last night this is one of the rare times when they both end up on the same weekend, the same, very almost the same dates. Um, I don't know how often that happens in the calendar, but uh, at any rate, hope uh, you enjoyed both. Uh, and it's good to have you back as part of the program here, the Bill Press Show, coming to you live coast to coast on the radio, on television, and online. And join me in saying hello to Ben Schneider, who's the Vice President of Political Affairs and Strategy for J Street. Hello, Ben. It's nice to see you. Bill, thanks for having me. Uh, how long has J Street been around now? J Street has now been around 11 years. Wow, 11 yeah. years. Yeah, that's Good. right. That's Good right. for you. Um, what is the, the general mission of Bay Street or J Street? How do you see it? Sure. Well, so we were founded uh, 11 years ago uh, because we thought that it was time to give voice to the majority of pro Israel Americans who understand that the future of Israel is a secure. Jewish democracy hinges on the uh, rightful national aspirations of the Palestinians, uh, and that it's time to put diplomacy first when it comes to our relationship with Israel and our approach to the Middle East more broadly. There had long been a misconception uh, that um, American Jews are are monolithic mm-hmm. and are right-leaning when it comes to uh, our relationship with Israel. And while American Jews deeply value the U.S.-Israel relationship, uh, we have much more in common with the worldview of President Barack Obama on these issues than we do Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu. And so we were founded to give voice to that majority. Well, as um, and, and in fact, so that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, covering the Obama White House, I always found that um, the Obama White House and President Obama himself was very supportive of the state of Israel. That's right. That's not the impression we got from... Prime Minister Netanyahu, whenever he came to the White House. Well, sure. Yeah, that's absolutely the case. I and mean, um, I saw him interacting with Obama. It was almost dis- disdain. Oh, you know? it, w- it was it was a disaster. And um, the thing that uh, President Obama understood, and that thankfully most of the contenders in the Democratic primary understand, um, is that supporting Israel doesn't simply mean supporting military aid. Doesn't simply mean making sure that Israel maintains its qualitative military edge. Uh, supporting Israel means fighting for the values that undergird the U.S.-Israel relationship in the first place, values such as democracy, um, values like pluralism, uh, the progressive values that make the U.S.-Israel relationship so significant and strategic in the first place. So mm-hmm. uh, President Obama and Secretary Kerry's pursuit of diplomacy with the Palestinians, their historic uh, Iran nuclear agreement, which uh, had prevented Iran from Iran from uh, developing a nuclear weapon without firing a single shot. These are the sorts of pro-Israel uh, policies that a majority of American Jews support, 
and that 11 years ago, before J Street came on the, the scene, there wasn't a sophisticated political movement to give voice to. Mm -hmm. So um, is it fair to say that you're the alternative for American Jews to APEC? I think, I think what it's fair to say is that there are um, multiple pro-Israel camps, so to speak. Um, APAC is certainly one of the more significant pro-Israel organizations yeah. out there. Um, now, if you were, though, to survey the scene 11 years ago, what you would see, see is that uh, the ideological alignment of those pro-Israel camps skewed to the center-right and far-right. That was, that was the spectrum, from the center-right to the far-right. Yeah. Huh. Um, since then, though, we've expanded the spectrum. And by the way, the, 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 the center to center-left of that spectrum um, that supports a, a, a more reasoned, diplomacy-first, pragmatic approach to the, re to the region, that's the majority of the Jewish community. So it, we've pulled every single election night bill since our founding, uh, and we found time and time again uh, what we intuited when J Street was founded, which is that super majorities of American Jews support a Palestinian state. They support the U.S. most significantly. They support the U.S. pressuring both Israelis and Palestinians to make significant accommodations to reach uh, a two-state outcome. Uh, a majority of American Jews supported the Iran nuclear deal, a bigger majority, by the way, Bill, than the rest of the electorate. Hmm. Um, so American Jews are... are middle-of-the-road, centrist, pragmatic-minded um, folks when it comes to our relationship with Israel and, and what it means to be pro-Israel. We're not, we're not the neoconservative hawks we've long been painted to be. Well, I know it's pretty basic, but it is, I mean, people have to understand, and I think you, you, you're, you're reading between the lines what you're saying, that one can be, just like one can be critical of the policies of the Trump administration or the Obama administration or the Bush administration and still be a patriotic American, one can be critical of the policies of the Israeli government and still be pro-Israel. Sure. I, I would even say that to be pro-Israel in today's day and age, one must be critical of the policies of this Israeli government. You know, one of the things that got me involved in politics here in America was the Iraq war. And I was taught around my dinner table growing up uh, from my parents who are children of the Vietnam era that the most patriotic thing I could do was to speak out against President Bush's Iraq war policy, that that's what it meant to be a good American was to speak out in times like that. And similarly, when the very values that, uh, that, that again, um, undergird the U.S.-Israel relationship in the first place, when the very values that inspired the founding of the state of Israel in the first place are under threat, um, it's incumbent upon, upon all of us who support Israel, all of us who support the U.S.-Israel relationship, not to stand up for President Trump, but to stand up to President Trump, not to stand up for Prime Minister Netanyahu, but to stand up to Prime Minister Netanyahu and all that they represent, uh, because the, the foundation of the U.S.-Israel relationship is under threat. Now, isn't it, it's almost impossible to distinguish between Prime Minister Netanyahu and President Trump these days. I was reading in this uh, latest issue, this is the uh, April 22nd issue of the New Yorker magazine, uh, editor David Remnick has a, the initial uh, open piece in the, mm -hmm. in, the, in the talk of the town. He, uh, quote, he quotes um, Sarah Netanyahu, uh, the prime minister's wife, of course, the telling President Trump, quote, the majority of the people of Israel, unlike the media, love us, love us. <laughs> 
So we tell them how you are great, and they love you, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I yeah. mean, and in fact, um, Donald Trump has done everything that, uh, that Netanyahu has asked him to. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Absolutely. Canceling the Iran nuclear deal. Absolutely. Um, annexing the Golan Heights. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now maybe annexing the entire West Bank. Right. And and uh, to, to so who's running, who's running, which country? Right. Well, well, there's two critical points. One, one thing that scares me as an American Jew, as a supporter of Israel, is that uh, the 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 history that uh, fostered for me or within me a support for Israel um, from my from my early days and from learning about the, the history of Israel and the, the U.S. Israel relationship and Truman recognizing Israel and, and in such an unstable time and all these things. The forces that that Israel was founded to protect against, uh, in many ways, are rearing their heads again in this world: authoritarianism, um, fascism, and it is uh, mind-boggling that this president and this prime minister are finding common cause with uh, the the global representatives of those forces, the, the vehicles for authoritarianism and fascism across the world as opposed to standing up to it. And that's why it's so important that we speak out. That's thing number one. Now, point yeah, number just two. Just on that yeah, point, if I get, uh, that um, Remnick mentions, mentions that in terms of some of the people, if I can find it, that, um, that uh, Prime, Prime Minister Netanyahu is mm-hmm. buddies, best buddies, with right. not only Donald Trump, but Victor Oban in Hungary, right. <laughs> Bolsonaro in right. Brazil, Putin in right. Russia. Right. Yeah. Right. These are not good people. <laughs> no. Good, uh, good way of putting it. And um, and this annexation point is the second point I wanted to get to. Uh, you know, it, it's absolutely critical. And, and Jay Street has called on all the 2020 contenders to call out Netanyahu um, and and to and to say that it should not be the U.S. Po- uh, the the policy of the United States to to tacitly support annexation or or even explicitly support We're it. Talking the West Bank. The West Bank, yeah, because yeah, they've right. already backed the Golan annexation. Um, and and I hope that more 2020 contender contenders will speak out. Four already have. Um, Pete Buttigieg. Let's see if I can remember them all. Um, yeah. Pete Buttigieg, Tulsi Gabbard, uh, Julian Castro, and Beto O'Rourke have all already spoken out, and I hope that more will. Um, but again, Isra- if Israel is to remain a a Jewish homeland and a democracy, um, this this step cannot be taken, and 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 and, ha- and Israel have Israel maintain those two uh, core characteristics. Again, the, the the core characteristics that I was taught in Jewish. Uh, day school made Israel such a special place. So uh, it's absolutely uh, inconceivable to me that supporters of Israel would remain silent in a time like this. We must so, all speak out. Uh, you know, I agree with you. And, 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 and despite its flaws today, Israel still is a very special place and, and unique among nations of the world and particularly in the Middle East. So how does Bibi get reelected? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Fifth term, right? right? <laughs> right. I mean, uh, is it just that, that that the majority of people in Israel feel so threatened, right? That right. They, I don't know. Right. Well, look, it's hard, um, hard to understand because to me he does not represent you know, the ideals that we all learn you know, to love about that Israel represented. Sure. Well, you know, a, a couple things. One, uh, if you look at the actual vote totals of the the centrists and center left block 
and compare them to the last election, you'll see that they actually got uh, tens of thousands more, more votes than they did in the prior election. So while they still came up short, um, it's such a complex game of 3D chess, the Israeli electoral system, cobbling together blocks and, know, and making sure. It's difficult. There's so many parties. It's, you know, right, exa exactly. a lot more complicated than here. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So yeah. so the numbers, if you look at the numbers, the, the, the trend, at least in terms of votes, was in the right direction. Uh, when you look at the numbers amidst the center and center-left block. Um, now, that's not much consolation when Prime Minister Netanyahu is still leading the country. You know, um, my humble opinion is that it's a dangerous neighborhood. There's a whole generation of Israelis. My generation of Israelis, my friends and, and cousins in Israel, have barely known a prime minister other, other than Bibi Netanyahu. Mm -hmm. um, and he's managed to employ some of yeah. the same tactics that, that, you know, as Remnick mentioned in his piece, that Trump has employed here of, of scaring his electorate in, into believing that only he, doesn't this sound familiar, only he can keep Israel safe and stable uh, in a very in a very dangerous neighborhood and in a very mm -hmm. unstable time, um, and so it, it's unfortunate. But those tactics they 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 worked here electorally, and you know there were over a thousand cameras in in um, majority Arab areas and polling places in majority right. Arab areas right. on election day. So these two guys, Bibi and Trump, they're 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 two peas no, in a the pod, and they're using the same playbook. The playbook is exactly the same. You know, if Donald Trump, I read about that that the thousand cameras at polling places, particularly where. Uh, Arab Israelis voted, right. right? If Donald Trump could have done that in this country, he would have done it. If he oh. thought of it, he would have done it. Sure, right? and yeah. he would have boasted about it, and, and Likud took credit for it and didn't shy away from from claiming that it was them. Which was really um, a form of voter suppression. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Again, doesn't this story sound familiar? So, But the good news okay. is this, Bill. The good news is that Trump will not <laughs> yes, Trump will not be here forever, and, and Netanyahu will not be in power there forever. And so, again, we, we can't give up. We can't stop fighting for the future right. uh, of the U.S.-Israel relationship that we want to see uh, and the future Israel that we want to see. And, it, and it's all about these values that, again, un undergird this relationship in the, in the first place, dem democracy, pluralism, and progressivism. Under both Republican and Democratic presidents in modern days, the role of the United States has been the honest broker in the Middle East. Wouldn't you agree? I would agree uh, up until this point, this chapter in history. Can we any longer fulfill that role under this administration? Just like on so many issues, it's, it's, it's going to take some, some undoing to get back to where, where we once were. I mean, um, when, when, you know, when Donald Trump says, sure, annex the Golan Heights, fine. Move the embassy, fine. Get rid of the Iran nuclear deal, fine. Annex the West Bank, he'll probably right. say fine to that. How how can we be an honest broker? Right, it's going to take some undoing. But the the good news again is that if you look at the field of twenty twenty Democratic hopefuls, the conversation has moved significantly. And so uh, you see, candidate after candidate after candidate calling out um, Netanyahu, calling out Trump for the ways in which this relationship is going off the rails. Um, and I, I think the, the, sil the silver lining is that you've seen more space open up to have a pro-Israel conversation on the campaign trail that is still critical, though, of this Israeli government, mm -hmm. um, that, that this relationship has gone so far off the rails that candidates see that they have to speak out for the good of it and that, yeah, it's going to be a challenge and it's going to take some time to undo what he has done. 
uh, but that we have to start now before we before there's even a new president in office and, and, and show that Trump is not speaking for the for the majority of Americans and the majority of, of supporters of Israel in this country. So two questions. Is the is the two state solution still the ultimate solution? And is it still alive or is it dead? Right. Uh, those are the two big questions. Um, I'll, I'll say this. Look, I don't see any other solution that is truly a solution in which you can have uh, a democratic homeland for the Jewish people on the one hand mm-hmm. and where the Palestinians can have rights uh, and, and can realize their own national aspirations on the other hand. Um, a one state outcome does not provide for that. And while it's become harder and harder and harder in my lifetime, certainly, uh, to realize a two-state outcome, there is still no alternative. And we've seen uh, in other seemingly intractable conflicts in history, it seems completely impossible uh, until through, you know, after decades and decades and decades and more, in many cases, of hard work, you wake up one day um, and, and it's the dreamers and it's those who, who choose hope over despair who have kept at it and kept doing the work. And while everybody else is asleep at the wheel saying it can't be done, you yeah. wake up one day and you've made progress. So I, I still don't see uh, a, 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 an alternative that provides for the rights and the aspirations of both peoples. Right. And the sad part is that there were Israeli leaders not so long ago you know, who were right. leading the dream right, right. of right. achieving a, a two-state a two-state solution. Uh, so I guess the other good news is, um, and Ben Schneider is our guest. He is the vice president for strategy and pol- uh, public political affairs at uh, J Street, and it's jstreet.org. That's so right, jstreet.org. Okay. Um, so I guess the other good news is that uh, it's all going to be resolved pretty soon because Jared Kushner is going to read. <laughs> going to reveal his uh, peace plan. And... Yeah. Is one of those redacted pages from the Mueller report that you were reading that? <laughs> yeah. right. One of these pages that's all blacked out. Maybe the, uh, there it is, the there Kushner is. plan. The Kushner plan. <laughs> is there a Kushner plan? I mean, look, you it, it's, it's, it's so sad that I, in some ways, can't help but laugh. If you uh, follow these guys on Twitter, uh, Jason Greenblatt um, and, and others who are supposed to be David Friedman, the ambassador to, to Israel, um, who who's a financial supporter of settlements? If you follow these guys on Twitter, they're they're bashing uh, the Palestinian leadership's reaction to a plan that they haven't yet put out there on Twitter, like a bunch of children. Um, so look, I I didn't go to the 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 School of Foreign Service at Georgetown, but I I, I don't think that's how one pursues diplomacy. So. Um, uh, color me pessimistic on this one, but I think the the peace plan is much more likely to be a peace sham. Right. <laughs> uh, sadly. Right? Sadly, yes. Uh, um, I have to ask you, um, at the same time, um, it's been troubling on several fronts lately, um, the controversy over comments made by Congresswoman Elon mm-hmm. Omar, mm-hmm. Um, uh, one of the few Muslims in, in Congress, and one of three, I think, elected last year. Uh, and so how do they impact the – first of all, what's your reaction on some of the things that she sure. said and how do they react to sure, sure. the peace process? So two things can be true at the same time. Number one, Congresswoman Omar's remarks offended some, um, and, uh, and, and, and that was unhelpful. And she apologized for that, by the way, very clearly. Um, and, uh, and learned from that and grew from that and engaged uh, those that she offended. 
And at the same time, uh, if you look at the, the other side of, of this aisle, the other side of the debate, you have a whole political party in these United States of America that has been co-opted by white nationalist racists. And it's that same strain of white nationalism that has actually inspired violence in this country, mm. that inspired an anti-Semite to, to walk into a, a, a synagogue in Pittsburgh and take 11 souls off the face of this earth. And so on the one hand, uh, what, what Congresswoman Omar said in certain cases was phrased indelicately and, like I said, uh, uh, offended some. She apologized for it. Um, the response to it of, of kind of throwing her under the bus, frankly, I thought was counterproductive. Um, and and I, I also think that we really suffer in this country when we do this both sides thing um, and when we paint the problem in this country right now with anti-Semitism, racism, hate speech as a problem that that we're seeing uh, in equal parts on both sides and from and, and from both and from all ends of the uh, ideological spectrum when that's simply uh, not the case. It's not it's it's also not the case that mm -hmm. that, you know, anti-Semitism and racism is purely a construct of the right. That's not what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. But it is the case that right now in today's America, um, the problem that we see that uh, that that is actually leading to violence when it comes to hate speech, when it comes to anti-Semitism, when it comes to white nationalism, racism, is coming from the right, where, again, we have an entire political party that's been co-opted by white nationalism. Right. And a leader of that party who has given the alt-right lots of encouragement. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that's, Either that's, directly or indirectly. You know, that's not well, to excuse what she said, but, but uh, you know, I, I think the debate has suffered from a both sides an analysis here. Now, and I, I know J Street has to be, I believe, um, apolitical, not maybe not apolitical, but certainly bipartisan, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but at the same time, there's no doubt Donald Trump has made it very, very clear that his electoral goal is to convince American Jews that they have to become Republicans. <laughs> right. I mean, he just spoke to this group out in Las Vegas, right? right. I mean, that's a, right. the Sheldon Adelson group, right? right? That's right. their whole thing. Right. They believe that they're going to move the entire American Jewish electorate from them to supporting Democrats right. for a whole variety of reasons on issues that they care about to supporting Donald Trump and the Republican right. Party. Well, a and good place for them to start, Bill, if they wanted to do that, if they really wanted to do that, would not be to waste $11 million on Israel messaging um, that American Jews disagree with. Like I said earlier in the interview, a mm -hmm. supermajority of American Jews uh, uh, support President Obama's worldview on this over Bibi Netanyahu and Donald Trump's worldview on this. Uh, the way to do it would be to unwind the political, uh, th their political party, the Republican Party, from the tentacles of white nationalism. Um, you're not going to persuade American Jews to, to, to seriously consider moving to the Republican Party when the Republican Party is controlled by bigots. And that's what we have in today's America. Um, this has been tried before, by the way. So we polled in 2012 when Sheldon Adelson, again, on, a, on um, you know, in an effort that was given tons of coverage, spent millions of dollars in Florida, of all places, <laughs> to try to persuade American Jewish voters that uh, then President Obama was throwing Israel under the bus and that they should abandon the Democratic Party because of it. Uh, these ads were seen by over 50 percent of Jewish voters in Florida. Mm -hmm. And when we asked them, did this make you more likely to uh, support the Republican Party and abandon pre uh, President Obama? They said, no, it only made me more likely to support President Obama. So very consistently, 
uh, for the last several decades, since President Carter, uh, about 75% of American Jews vote Big D Democratic, um, about 25% vote Republican. It's uh, the second most consistent uh, demographic block for the Democratic Party. And we also see very consistently that Israel is not a top voting issue for American Jews. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. while, while American Jews support Israel, care about Israel, it's a threshold issue. You have to cross a basic threshold of, uh, of understanding what, what my grandparents would call the Kishkis test. Is it in your Kishkis? Do you really, do you really value the U.S.-Israel relationship? But after that, American Jews are just like anyone else. They move on to, why is my 25-year-old uh, you know, kid still living in my basement? Why can't he find yeah. a job? And they vote on other issues. Right. Ben, so glad you're there, and uh, so glad J Street is there, uh, and thanks for coming in. Well, thanks and, for having out the issues for us. Again, uh, you can find out more about J Street. Follow their work at J and give your support at jstreet.org. When we come back, Daniel Lipman joins us from Politico. This thanks again, Ben. Is the Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how you can follow us on. Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Just what we need, another Democrat running for president. Yeah, Congressman Seth Moulton from Massachusetts announcing today he's going to uh, join the crowd. <laughs> it is getting crowded. I think we're up to 18, 19 or 20 now already with Seth, Mul Seth Moulton. And there's something about Massachusetts. He is the third person from Massachusetts to decide to run for president this year. Uh, of course, Elizabeth Warren, one of the others, and William Weld running against Donald Trump in the uh, Republican primary. Hello, everybody. It's the Bill Press Show on a Monday, April 22nd. Uh, belated happy Passover and belated happy Easter. I uh, hope both were good for you and you had a great weekend. It's a beautiful weekend. Beautiful weekend, actually, here in Washington, D.C. Um, but now we get uh, back to work. Congress comes back uh, with uh, lots of tackle on the Supreme Court with a great big um, big hearing this week on the census question. Uh, and uh, we will get into uh, all of those with all of you and look forward to hearing your comments on Twitter uh, at BP Show. Uh, the big stories, uh, Elizabeth, including the ones we mentioned, the Supreme Court, taking a look at that census question. Um, Donald Trump pointing out that, uh, that even the man who bragged that he has the best memory, perhaps, of anybody in the world, uh, some 30 times uh, responding to the uh, uh, Mueller written uh, interrogation, said he couldn't remember crap. Uh, and Elizabeth Warren jumping out in front saying Democrats ought to open up impeachment hearings for the president. We have um, uh, lots to talk about and a lot of help this hour, starting with 
Our good friend from Politico, uh, co-author of Politico Playbook, Daniel Lippman, joining us on a Monday morning. Hello, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. You're all ready to go. You. I had MSNBC all... this morning, so you... I kind of just. Oh, we missed in. you. I didn't see you. You were in was, Morning Joe. Uh, Morning Joe First Look, which is the oh the first five a.m. five thirty a.m. show. So man, you, they you... know that I'm up, so it's easy for me to swing it. Yeah. 24 hours around the <laughs> clock <laughs> that media monster here that's good so um how about another uh, democratic candidate for president right yeah although i don't know you know i've met seth moulton you know he's a good guy but i don't know what lane he's actually running <laughs> like, who, i don't i'm not sensing a ton of grassroots energy and support that is uh saying to the democratic party we need seth to run uh so that's kind of something that he has to uh, battle, battle against. Well, yeah, he's going to be um, on Rachel Maddow tonight. We'll see what he has to say. Uh, but, you know, her show is kind of like the you know, it used the to be in the 2016 campaign. Every presidential candidate did Sean Hannity. And now she's kind of the new <laughs> Sean Hannity well, of the left for that. They're certainly not going to do Sean Hannity. That's right. No, no she's been the launching pad for a couple of others. Tim Bryan, Tim Ryan, I think, was on her show and. But what strikes me as strange is that, um, first of all, there's so many candidates out there, right? What lane? What lane is left? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and also, the, the, all the last few that have gotten in are white males, right? Yeah. Which is this what the Democratic Party needs? Is that's more... two white males talking right now? Exactly. <laughs> I don't exactly. know how, what credibility we have on this. Well, issue. I, I would just say no. We don't need another white male. Not to mention that Joe Biden's probably going yeah, to get in this week. This week. Too. So right? um, there was a New York Times story about uh, you know asking the question of whether a white male should represent the Democratic Party, uh, and you know it's often. Uh, you know, although the party is getting more diverse and there's many more women in Congress, this year, it also takes a while to develop uh, people's political talents and, uh, you know, experience levels. And so AOC is, can't even run for president. Uh, you know, I'm sure she would if uh, she, she, oh, was, you bet. You if bet she was of age. And so, um, you know, it's, it's easier sometimes for white men to kind of uh, jump in. So we got uh, lots and lots to talk about here. And uh, by the way, big uh, CNN town hall coming up tonight with five of the wow. <laughs> five of the Democratic candidates. Yeah, if you really want to binge out on <laughs> on politics, tonight is a way to do it. This is the Bill Press Show. Rudy Giuliani now says, talk about a switch. The Trump administration is going from, uh, we have no contacts with the Russians, to Rudy Giuliani telling us yesterday, what's wrong with getting information from the Russians? Anybody would do it, just like we did. Hey, what do you say? Hello, everybody. On a Monday, April 22nd, it is the Bill Press Show. Hello, 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 and welcome to the program. Great to see you today. We've got lots to talk about, and that's why it's good to see you. I uh, hope you had a, a great Passover and a great Easter and are ready to go here into another very, very busy week uh, with lots to talk about as we join you on coast to coast, online, on the radio and on television. With us this half hour from Politico, a co-author of Politico Playbook. We always tell you sign up for Playbook. Just go to politico.com and click on the link to Playbook. Yeah. And Daniel Lippman and his uh, colleagues uh, out there uh, 
Twice a day they will bring you up to date on everything that's happening here in Washington, D.C., and politically around the country. Daniel Lippman, good to see you. Thanks for having me back, Bill. Did you have a good weekend? I did. I was yeah. in New York uh, you know, celebrating uh, Passover and Easter. Yeah, well, very good. I saw that you, uh, you were busy at the same time. One of the things you were writing about is that um, Donald Trump has been taking a more critical look at Fox lately. Huh? Yep. Yeah, he's not so happy with some things that Fox. Fox has done. is not happy with uh, some things <laughs> uh, Trump uh, is saying, and so there's you know much more tension with the network than there used to be, uh, and you know a lot of Americans consider Fox kind of a propaganda network uh, for the administration and for Trump. They're always defending him, but um, actually during the news hours uh, in the middle of the day. Uh, and even some of the uh, opinion hosts in the morning, they've criticized Trump on a number of things. You know, they've pointed out that uh, there hasn't actually been much wall built. Uh, they've criticized Trump uh, when, you know, he's gone too far on some of the stuff that he works on. And so uh, and then he is, you know, called for some of the reporters and anchors to work for CNN, and uh, which he hates. Uh, so it does seem that there's uh, much more. Uh, animosity between the two sides right now, and that and Bill Shine and he, you know, he left the White House where he was communications director and used to run Fox. Is this a? Do you think a factor of the new management at Fox just figuring they have to show a? They're not going to repudiate Trump, but just show a little distance, maybe. I think that might be part of it. Uh, Rupert has basically retired, yeah, and so his uh, sons are taking over his empire. Uh, more and so, uh, and his sons are viewed as more liberal, but they've both defended Fox as, um, you know, they're, they're, there's nothing to be ashamed of, that they're proud of uh, the work and that they represent uh, kind of the other side, they speak to that. But uh, this is, uh, you know, a new generation of viewers too, because uh, there's a lot of young people that. If they're going to keep people hooked to Fox, they have to be seen as a little critical of uh, President we, of President Trump. And we have a story yeah. today uh, about how Stephen Miller, you know, got mm-hmm. personally involved in immigration policy. And if that had happened in the Obama administration uh, with individual immigrants, then the Fox News would have gone crazy. And uh, so they don't really uh, hold Trump people accountable for the same misdeeds. Um, yeah, I saw, I, I must admit, I saw that story this morning. I didn't have a chance to read it. But what what is the the gist of it? That, that but he call, you know, he calls up DHS officials and interferes in specific immigration cases, which is, uh, you know, pretty interesting. But these are cases that he personally had heard about? Yeah, if it's like a high level, it's a high profile uh, illegal immigrant detainee. Uh, and then he also wants to get more of that uh, those messages out to the media, and you know this. Uh, so calling up DHS officials and say, like this particular person, you got to deport or you got to keep like in that, yeah. in detention or whatever. Yeah, yeah. and so uh, and they d- the DHS officials they've tried to resist him, and they say if you if you hear from Stephen, then you know hang up immediately and, and report to your superior. It's pretty high handed for the president's top Chief advisor, advisor on to immigration to call from the White House on a case that somebody way down in the bureaucracy is yeah. dealing with and used to dealing with at that yeah. level, right? And so, yeah. uh, but everyone knows that Miller is a, uh, you know, is a hardline immigration hawk, and so it's not a huge surprise that he's kind of, you know, he said in books, remember in that Cliff Sims book, he'd be happy if there was not a single refugee right. person who, uh, 
you know, if, if hit their our so, our, our uh, soil and so our shores and so. Uh, he's kind of representing Trump's agenda with this. Uh, you know, Trump has said, "Get you know, he wants to deport them all," and that's not going to happen. That's but yeah, but he's uh, he's channeling Stephen Miller when he when he when he says that. Back to Fox for just a second. I think the other manifestation of Fox's again, hardly repudiation of Trump, but just showing a little bit of distance yeah. is the town halls yep. where they had one with Bernie. Now they yeah. have one with Amy Klobuchar. We know they're talking to Pete Buttigieg and Julian Castro. I think it's to the Democrats' advantage to do these town halls, oh, yeah. and uh, I think it's to Fox's advantage to do them. You know, they got two point six million viewers for for uh, oh, yeah. Bernie Sanders on on Fox, there's, and there's and that's not just Bernie supporters. There's a lot of Fox, yeah, right, you know, interested people uh, who are curious about uh, what Bernie is having to say. And uh, there was remember there's a lot of crossover between Sanders and Trump supporters where. If Sanders had actually worked harder, uh, in many Democrats' opinion, to get all of his supporters out for Hillary Clinton, then uh, Hillary would have won. So there's a lot of people that supported Sanders in the primaries, and then sometimes they, some of them switched over to support Trump uh, in the general election. And so, uh, you know, Fox had, has talked to one former White House official, and they said, you know, the the fact that Fox is putting on Democrats and doing these town halls, you know, shows that. President Trump is not the only game in town. There's other stories to cover, uh, and the 2020 uh, campaign is fast upon us. Right. Now, the only game in town this week, of course, is the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you are the ultimate party-goer here in, in, in Washington, um, but that's part of your job. I'm not yes. being critical. That's Thank right. you. That's, yes, but— um, it's a great job to have to go to parties. <laughs> <laughs> is it going to be— the big deal this year's dinner that it usually is? I don't think it's going to be that uh, as big of a deal as it uh, often is because, A, there's no comedian. There's no president coming. Fewer members of the administration, high officials, will be in attendance. Uh, and Has you know, the White House put out the word to administration officials, don't go to the dinner this year? I don't think – I don't know if they've – uh, said that explicitly, but Sarah Sanders isn't going, and so I think some of them will go to the, some of the parties. But um, I should double check on if they've actually encouraged their officials to go. I, I've been wondering because but, this is the third. This will be the third year in a row that Donald Trump is not attending a White House correspondents' dinner. He is actually having uh, a rally. I forget now in Wisconsin. Wisconsin, right? That's right. Uh, Green Bay, I believe. Uh, at the same time, sort of his counter event right, yeah. to try to take some of the, and as you point out, there's no comedian after last year, some embarrassment. Yeah. They decided they're going to go with a presidential historian. Uh, I'm going Ron to the Turner, dinner as, yeah. as a member of the White House Correspondents Association. I will support my association, but I, I do think having a presidential historian talk about presidential history or whatever is hardly going to be as entertaining as. <laughs> Most he might of the do a good job, are. and so uh, I think he will. But it's going to be a different it's kind be, of. I don't. I don't know about his comedic talents, so I haven't. I, I would have not to make sure it. I stay awake. You know, <laughs> in one of these dinners. and uh, so uh, and, it'll be. You know, the Hill was going to. They had like pulled out of doing anything with the dinner, but then they recently announced that they're you know coming back because they, there's been significant reforms. But it's still a. Big weekend, but there are a lot of the parties, like the Vanity Fair party, the New Yorker party, the Time People party. They've all, you know, disappeared in the last couple of years. Right. It's not necessarily 
a bad thing for the White House Correspondents Association that maybe has less of glitter and glamour and celebrities. Right. But that's kind of one of the reason one of the draws of the whole weekend was that you could rub shoulders with Helen Mirren and George Clooney, yeah. Barbara Streisand. Oh yeah, no, it was very much a Hollywood. Hollywood came to came to the uh, came to the Potomac. So, um, Daniel, you mentioned Daniel Lipman was from Politico, Politico.com. You mentioned Sarah Huckabee Sanders um, in a little bit of hot water after the Mueller report came out. Um, we remember that I was there in the briefing room. Back on May 6, right? No, May 10, uh, 2017, after Donald Trump had fired James Comey. And she says, well, we did this as a favor, basically, to those workers at the uh, FBI. Here she is. Look, we've heard from uh, countless members of the FBI that say very different things. Uh, In fact, uh, the president will be meeting with acting director McCabe uh, later today to discuss that very thing, the morale at the FBI, as well as uh, make an offer to go directly to the FBI if he feels that that's necessary. We've heard from countless, countless is the operative word, members of the FBI uh, when she uh, was interviewed by the special counsel's investigators, uh, she admitted that that was based on absolutely nothing, yep. uh, which she says wasn't a lie. It was here she is uh, just uh, last week. I acknowledged uh, that I had a slip of the tongue when I oh. used the word countless, oh. but it's not untrue. Just a slip of the tongue. Yeah. yeah. Right. By countless, it's hard to count them if they don't exist. That's <laughs> <So, laughs> uh, too easy to make uh, a joke of. But. Yeah, it, it raises serious credibility issues because usually, uh, you know, we have to, you know, think what else is she not telling the truth about? And so there could be a whole litany of stuff that uh, where, you know, it seems like uh, she uh, has gotten better press than Sean Spicer, uh, you know, who was kind of after that first briefing about the inauguration crowds, whatever he said, whether it's truthful or inaccurate, it was hard to, uh, you know. Uh, recover uh, from that, but uh, this is something. And but you know, but Sean is actually uh, working in the private sector now and doing a lot of speeches, consulting, and so yeah. uh, he has uh, recovered um, and is you know not um, as you know vilified a figure, and so he's kind of rebuilt uh, himself. Does she survive uh, as press secretary? I'm sure she'll survive. It's just a question of what uh, she wants to do next. You know, what a Walmart or GE hire her as a communications person, or does she stick to politics? Uh, it used to be you could go to McDonald's or United Airlines. That's where uh, two of the uh, Amazon. Amazon, that's yeah. Where it's all, Jay you know, three of the uh, Obama press secretaries are working in top communications roles. But now uh, I feel like a lot of customers of these companies would rebel if they hired a Sarah Sanders type. So um, uh, April Ryan from Urban Radio Network, uh, also a consul- uh, yeah, um, what the commentator at, um, at a contributor, that's the word I was looking for, for, for CNN, um, said, um, you know, she lied to us. It's time, she's got to go, time to, <clears throat> to use the unfortunate phrase, lop off her head. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, you know, April 1 kind of is, can be 
trusted to uh you know give those types of quotes and so not a big surprise that you know someone who is tangled but, with the white house all the time right uh, and uh, doesn't have good relations with uh, them and it doesn't uh it i mean obviously uh, right the decision is not for the white house correspondence association no. to make or any of the reporters it's, it's donald trump's decision and you know uh, we can you can bet that he is Fact, very happy with her job. The job. The she's fact doing. that they don't have press briefings anymore—that's kind of yeah. a mixed blessing because those were kind of showboating affairs to begin with. But there is still some value in holding these Absolutely. officials accountable, and so it's kind of a—you'd hope but, that a, the future administration would bring these things back at least on a regular basis. Well, one thing you at uh, Politico have 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 focused on, which it's it's sort of a, an undercurrent of the entire. Uh, here it is, by the way, the Mueller, Mueller report. report. Yeah. Uh, is working at the White House, working in the White House, this Trump White House, it's really kind of a mess, isn't it? I mean, very chaotic and uh, not, uh, if you want a stable workplace and not riven by internal intrigue, then that's the White House is not the place for you right now. But th- I will say that uh, the back, there are the backbiting between the staff, right? And, uh, uh, and the fear, almost right, that that, that if they express any opinion, that's not uh, the president's, you know, whatever his message is of the day or whatever he's. And sometimes they don't know where he's going to yeah, go yeah. on particular issues. You know, there's it's, it's just a lot of chaos and concern. The uh, you know limelight in the White House, then you can do your job fine and not get uh, sucked into the internal fights. And so if you're uh, not someone who is attracting press attention then, uh, or if you're just well-liked and you're a good colleague, uh, then um, and you're smart to kind of not interfere with people's stuff, then uh, there's no reason for you to be thrown on the bus by anyone. Right. Um, but it's certainly, as you point out, not necessarily the most comfortable place to be working these days, no, no. matter what level. And a lot of people are. are burned out after working there for two years straight plus. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, what overall, uh, what impact do you think the Mueller report has had? I think it has kind of hardened people's positions into what they were already thinking. And I think the impact is that it uh, kind of definitively shows that there is not enough for Republicans in the Senate to support impeachment. And uh, that means that uh, if Democrats, uh, for Democrats to remove Trump from office, they will have to do it by electoral legitimate means uh, and not by kind of a uh, congressional uh, impeachment or what, what Republicans would say would be a coup because um, if if he's not you know charged with any crime, then they would say that's not uh, appropriate to do that and that uh, it would actually help help Trump's supporters and help him help his case if there was a failed impeachment effort because then he could paint himself legitimately as a big martyr. You know, they went after me. They couldn't get me. Uh, but we have to, uh, you know, have get me to serve a second term uh, as kind of revenge against Democrats. And so uh, if Democrats don't do that, then uh, Trump lose, you know, will not have access to a very a popular, uh, you know, talking point. Right. Um, and there are obviously some Democrats who are urging uh, the opposite path. Yeah. Uh, here is uh, Elizabeth Warren speaking to a group of supporters um, over over the weekend. For me, this isn't about politics. This is about principle. And that's why I've asked uh, the House 
to start impeachment proceedings against Donald Trump. So. Now, it's interesting. She says this is not about politics. This is about the principle. Um, I, with all due respect, I think it was about getting a political headline and not necessarily what's good for the Democratic Party. No. And um, her campaign is already facing a lot of headwinds um, in terms of raising money uh, and polls that uh, even though she's still a, in the top tier, she is, does not have the momentum like Mayor Pete or Joe Biden will after his announcement uh, on Wednesday. And so that is makes it uh, you know very important for her to kind of uh, grab anything she can get. And so that is uh, what her strategy is. And she, you know, she legitimately has established a lane in terms of releasing serious policy proposals. Mm-hmm. But yeah. policy is not everything that people vote on. And so she has to recognize that uh, there's a whole lot more to uh, people's voting choices. And you, know, you have a white, white paper on, monop- on breaking up the tech monopolies. That does not uh, – you know, people want someone they can rally behind who has charisma. All the presidents uh, we've elected in recent years have charisma, and the next one, I, I can't see that this this is going to be different. The um, this year, right? It's, it's interesting too that her call for impeachment for starting impeachment hearings um, has not been echoed by many of the uh, other Democratic candidates running for president. I mean, I I don't think any of them have come gone as far as she has said, uh, like Mayor. Castro has a little bit, but uh, he's not in the top tier. Right. I saw that uh, Pete Buttigieg said something like, clearly uh, there's there's a lot of uh, improper behavior or wrongdoing on the president's part or whatever. Now it's up to Democrats to decide, in yeah, Congress, yeah. to decide what they do about it, right? Just Kind of a yeah, pass the buck. Pass the buck to Congress and let them decide. And as long as Nancy Pelosi's in charge, That's what they're not going to no start impeachment, impeachment hearings, right? which, again, I just said this earlier in the program, I think is wise because uh, two things. They've got all the opportunities that that House committees have to conduct investigations, right? Yep. Judiciary, House Intelligence Committee, the Oversight Committee, the Banking Committee, God knows how many. Uh, number one. And number two, they've got the 2020 campaign with lots of opportunities to go around the country and, and make sure that people understand the damage that Donald Trump has done and what that, what's at stake in the 2020 election, not not spending all their energy on impeachment hearings, which will go nowhere once they get to the Senate because the Senate's not going to conduct. Yeah. What Pelosi's allies are saying is that um, you focus on the things that you can be successful at, not uh, at futile efforts that will only help the other side. How is that logical or rational to do that? It might make you feel good in terms of uh, you know impeaching uh, Trump in the House, but uh, it is not a winning strategy long term. Do you really want four more years of Trump if you're a Democrat? Probably not. Um, I think that's a yeah, right. <laughs> and I think that's to a, boil it down. That's kind of where I think. The, but but when you boil it down, I think it's a, a position that makes a, that that makes. If uh, Democrats can't defeat Trump in uh, 2020, no, that's that's their problem. It's not. Uh, you know, uh, we'll have to see if there's any foreign government interference, but. If there's not, then uh, you know it's up to the uh, you know someone to actually catch fire and to have a plausible case for why Trump should not be reelected. 
One of the things that uh, struck me, uh, and I spent a lot of time in the weekend going through this uh, Mueller report, is um, Don McGahn coming out as White House counsel. He appears to be the one white hat out of the Trump White House, right? Uh, which surprised me. I didn't think. And of Hope him. Hicks has, uh, Hope. in some ways, uh, has also kept her reputation. The Slate had an article about you know calling her kind of like a a savior of Trump because you know she tried to do the right thing and encourage him to do as well. But Don McGahn is the major. Uh, you know, player here, and Trump is kind of concerned about how much he cooperated, how much he told uh, Mueller's team about uh, everything that he did in the White House, because he, you know, was clear, carefully documenting everything with notes. And uh, Trump asked him, "Why are you taking notes?" And, uh, you know, my lawyers, you know, lawyers don't do that. And he's like, "I'm a real lawyer. I do that." So, uh, <laughs> I think because Roy Cohen never took notes, right? That's, that's... I'm sure Roy Cohen took notes as well, so just not in Trump's presence. But but McGahn, just to amplify that a little bit, when when Trump called him on two occasions and said, you've got to get Robert Mueller fired, right, McGahn? He didn't do it. And yeah, so refused to he, do it. You know, he knows that and was just, he's a smart guy, and he knows that that would uh, permanently, uh, you know, uh, tar him in history. And so why not, why not go down as the guy who saved uh uh, the presidency and and Trump and so Trump he did Trump a favor by not doing that. So you done that, then you get impeachment. Absolutely, so yeah. Trump should be thanking him. It's very ironic. It, it no, it is no. Good point. Good point. Yeah, he said I'm not going to do it, and then Donald Trump says so. Then lie to, to, to tell the New York Times I never ask you to do it. And the kid says I'm not going to do that either because that's not true. No. And then and if you know what, it's interesting because. That does demonstrate that maybe some people could learn from that, that you can stand up to Donald Trump yeah. and survive, Yeah. right? And he's— And he, most people are afraid to. A lot of people are afraid to. And um, again, he's going back to—he has started again at his old law firm, Jones Day. So he's going to make a lot of money there. And, uh, you know, I don't think he, you know— Unlike Michael Cohen, he has a future, and um, you know. But you just have to be a smart lawyer. If he had actually done all of that, then he would have been, uh, uh, you know, not not uh, acceptable in polite society, and companies would be loath to hire him if he was seen as a person who I went think, over the law. That's. I think that's a very good point. If you look at the parallel between Don McGahn, where he is today, what he did, and where he's going, right, and Compare him to Michael Cohen. Front page New York Times piece this morning about how Michael yeah. Cohen finally decided Donald Trump was not going to stand by him, and so he decided I might as well tell what I, what I, but, 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 but I know, uh, uh, and yet where McGahn stood up to Donald Trump, Michael Cohen did not. Um, did the hush money payments late, and all yeah. that kind of stuff? Right, it's too late for him to say I'm sorry I did what I did, and in two weeks. Michael Cohen's going to be reporting to federal prison. Yeah. Um, and, and, and Don McGahn will be making money at his old law firm and, testify, time, and yeah. testifying in front of Congress yeah. and received as a hero in Capitol Hill. Yeah. Those, two, those two stories side by side are pretty telling. And, um, you know, while Trump, while Rudy Giuliani and Trump's lawyers are disputing what McGahn said, they're not actually saying anything specifically was wrong. And so until they actually... Engage in the weeds, you know. Did did Trump say this to McGahn? Did he not? Like 
so far they're just saying, well, he's, you know, maybe his notes are wrong, but they're not actually saying, well, this was exactly wrong. So that's kind of a, a tell that they don't have enough, that, that Don is telling the truth. Right. So have you did you read all 448 pages? I'm still working my way through. <laughs> so you might, you might top me on that. Front. No, uh, I'm still working my way through, yeah. too. <laughs> no doubt about it. All right. You got an early start, and uh, thanks for including us as part of your early start here to this Monday. Thank you, Bill. Daniel Lippman from Politico. Politico.com playbooks all you need twice a day to know everything that's going on in Washington. Be sure to sign up. Igor Babish from HuffPost joins us next here as we roll on with this Monday edition of the Bill Press Show. Give us a quick break, and then we'll be right back. latest member of the Young Turks Network, live at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. And on a Monday, April 22nd, hello, 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 the Bill Press Show, live from our nation's capital. Brought to you today by the Laborers International Union of North America, the good men and women of the Laborers Union, Laborers Union of North America, L-I-U-N-A, under President uh, Terry O'Sullivan. We support, salute them support, and thank them for the support of the program. Uh, check out their website at liunabuildsamerica.org. And uh, join me in welcoming back to the uh, program our good friend from HuffPost, uh, covering particularly the 2020 front, Igor Babish, political reporter. Hello, Igor. Nice to see you. Nice to see you, Bill. Thanks You've for been on me. the road. I have. With uh, Beto. And, That's right. Well, before we get to Beto, though, let's talk about the latest to jump in. Uh, just when we thought we knew what the uh, field was going to be, uh, here comes Congressman Seth Bolton. There'd be some word Bolton. that he might run. Bolton. <laughs> Bolton. Molten. Molten. <laughs> sorry. Not Bolton now. Yeah. Molton. From Massachusetts. Some word he might run, but I'm still su- surprised. I mean, what was the demand for <laughs> Seth Molton to jump well, in? Well, <laughs> I, I don't know about the presidential <laughs> demand, but there is probably a high demand for, uh, you know, a, a tough-on national security uh Middle-aged, good-looking white dude as a vice president, potentially. <laughs> yeah, so I, you got to figure half of these people are running for either for vice president or, or cabinet secretary. You know, veteran could put him as defense secretary, possibly. Well, um, you know, uh, Daniel was making this point in the last half hour. If everybody is looking for a lane, right? I mean, yeah. what lane is left for? another white male member of Congress. Right, right. Well, you, you know, he's saying that he's going to be tough on national security. He's the Democrat who's going to tout. He's going to be that guy. He's got the the uh, the background of a former Iraq veteran. Um, and not many uh, candidates now are veterans in the Democratic <clears throat> Democratic race. Pete Buttigieg, of course, is one. Um, so he's he's got that record. And, uh, you know, some people view Bernie Sanders' record on foreign policy as, as kind of a fertile ground to go after him on. Uh, so he could make that argument. I, I don't know how much it's gonna, you know, he's gonna get traction based off of that. Um, I'm not even sure he can make the first debate. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see. Because I mean, getting in late, plus right. he doesn't have a a national base, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, probably. I, I I felt the same way about Eric Swalwell from California, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and Seth Moulton maybe. Not as well known as Eric Swalwell. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, 
He is, by my count, with Tim Ryan, Tulsi Gabbard, Eric, Eric Swalwell, and John Delaney, the fifth member of Congress to announce, which is... Of the House. Yeah. Of the House, I'm yeah. sorry. Totally yeah. unusual, right? Yeah. I mean... And, you know, he's a Massachusetts congressman. There's already a big-name Massachusetts lawmaker in the race, right? Uh, two. Two. William two. Weld. That's right. William <laughs> Weld. <laughs> uh, and also... The, the last time we really heard of Seth Moulton, maybe the first time he got any national exposure at all, is he led the little rump effort to dethrone Nancy Pelosi or That's not right. have her uh, elected again as speaker. <laughs> How did that go? Uh, awkward. <laughs> <laughs> Nancy Pelosi, who's like uh-uh. very much at the top of her game right now, uh, is looking at you know him and there's also uh, Tim Ryan, who's also running, was also part of that little resistance group that was trying to oust her. A speaker uh, that they've got to go back now and and you know kind of ingratiate themselves back with Pelosi's good graces, which by the way, knowing her, it's tough to do, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah good forget. luck with that. <laughs> good, exact. Good luck with that. Uh, one former member uh, of Congress that uh, that you've been following um, is Beto O'Rourke, uh, and it, to a certain extent, it looks like you know the buzz around Beto is kind of toned down a little bit. Yeah, yeah. especially with, you know, you've got Pete Buttigieg now, who's the new hot thing. It's kind of blowing up. We'll see. He, he might be peaking too early. We don't know. Um, but, you know, Beto was this was this guy who, was, who shook up the race, and then within a couple of weeks, uh, we haven't really heard much about him. And I, I think that's partly due to his campaign strategy, which so far has been uh, kind of a retread of the Texas Senate race. You know, he's going everywhere. He's meeting with a lot of people, big play, big towns, small towns. Um, but it's focused less on less on policy. Um, so he hasn't been really able to generate headlines in the way that some of these other people have. You know, like daily headlines to get themselves in the news. You you also haven't seen him much on television, on MSNBC or a lot of these mainstream you know yeah right. shows that <laughs> candidates have to go on to to, to get. To get coverage in order to get fundraising, and uh, actually, I was at a an event for Beto last week in Virginia where a woman got up and she was like, "Listen, I love you, but I don't see you on MSNBC. Like, you got to start doing TV." And uh, he said uh, he told her that he would much rather prefer to talk to people eye to eye. And she said, "I don't know how much that works, you know, nationally. It works in Texas. I don't know how much it works nationally." So I think she made kind of a good point. So you were there at that? I I read about that event. Yeah. My, probably your story, but it was in Northern Virginia? Correct. Yeah. Right. No, he loves these showing up at you know, house meetings or yeah. coffee shops and right. or, or whatever. And they're relatively small crowds, Yeah. right? Yeah. We're not talking about 20,000 people right. for sure. Yeah. Um, and that, that, that you're right, that got him close to beating Ted Cruz in Texas, but mm. a presidential campaign's a little different. <laughs> a little different, yeah. And and I mean we talk about cable TV. That first day that he went to Texas or went to Iowa, right, and, mm-hmm. and announced he was going to run, and he showed up at some coffee shop in you know, Iowa. I mean, yeah. all three <laughs> cable networks We're had wrong. him uh, covered it live, yeah. right? Uh, it doesn't get that doesn't get that following anymore. The yeah, cameras I mean, are not following him around to I, every event. And, and to be fair, <laughs> you know, given. <laughs> His first first quarter fundraising haul was pretty good. I mean, yes, he, was, yes. he was only behind Bernie Sanders and Kamala Harris, right? So third, mm-hmm. not you know, pr- pretty good, all things considered. But like 
how much does it keep going is a thing we'll have to see. Right. Um, we have uh, Eric, uh, Seth Moulton will mm-hmm. not be the only one, we, we believe, to jump in this week. Um, of course, we've been waiting a long time for Godot, right, <laughs> in the form of Joe Biden to come in. But Wednesday, is is it going to happen Wednesday? Reportedly, yeah. It's they, they haven't to be Wednesday. announced an event yet. They right? have not, but there's been signs. You know, some, somebody, you know, in this day and age spotted him outside of his... Uh, <laughs> His uh, his childhood home in Scranton, uh, in Scranton uh, filming a video. Who knows what that could be? You know, <laughs> um, and uh, his team has been making overtures to people on the hill. So this is this has been some time coming now. So it it takes it, it, the release or the launch will be in the form of a video released on Wednesday. Do we know that he's going to have like, you know? Kirsten Gillibrand had a big crowd in front of Trump Tower. Yeah, Kamala Harris in Oakland. Yeah. you know Bernie in Burlington. I think or they'll Brooklyn, brother. They'll probably do some kind of combo of video and and the event somewhere. What's been talked about is possibly uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, where the president said, "Yeah, uh, there are people on good people on both sides." So you know, kind of drawing attention to that. Uh, that could be a, a possibility for us. So um, is Biden the front runner? At the moment, I mean, he hasn't gotten in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if right. you look at the polls, he is polling at least <clears throat> equally or above with Bernie Sanders, who right now does appear to be the front runner. Of those who are in, yeah. Bernie is the front runner, right? Right, right. But I mean, um, that's what I, I, yeah. what I mean is when I know Joe's been ahead of the polls even before he's in. Yeah. But once he is in, does he, does this sort of become a Biden Bernie battle, and all the rest are also runs? I, I mean, I think. If you kind of dig into the polls and you look at Biden's support, there's a lot of people who are saying, you know, he, yes, I know Biden. It's he's part of that Obama legacy. That's something that they'd want to vote back into office. Um, but as far as second choices, and it just kind of filters all over the place. So if if he doesn't do well for whatever reason, um, it's going to be interesting to see where his support support shifts to which candidate. You know, it could be Harris, could be Warren, could be Sanders. Um, a, lot, a lot of people are, are kind of multi-shopping candidates right now. Right. Um, and could be Julian Castro. It could be Julian Castro. Yeah. Right. I mean, I keep people I'm reading where people think he may have his moment maybe. Yeah. He, he has not yet. Um, and he was actually, over the weekend, one of the first ones to, to say that maybe we should consider starting impeachment proceedings, even before in Warren, actually. Uh, but that got lost in the coverage. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't see that. I heard yeah. it this morning, but I didn't see that over the weekend. Right? Um, wh- where are they um, in terms of uh, I- impeachment? Again, we've heard earlier, maybe just one more time, Elizabeth Warren making it very clear um, to supporters over the weekend. Here she is. For me, this isn't about politics. This is about principle, and that's why I've asked uh, the House to start impeachment proceedings against Donald Trump. Um, but it is about politics. <laughs> Always is. <laughs> yeah, right? Well, yeah, there's nothing to say that it can't be both, right? It's good politics, and right. she truly believes that that's what should happen. Uh, well, what is interesting in the last, I don't know, what is it, 48 hours that she has called for impeachment mm-hmm. proceedings? Nobody else has followed her. 
Right. Um, there's been right. a lot of hemming and hawing from candidates. Like, yeah, maybe if the evidence is there. But typically what you would see, and you saw it in other issues like the filibuster or uh, the question of reparations, a lot of candidates following joining calls to, to go along with that. Nobody else has uh, has joined with Warren to call for impeachment proceedings. And and she's not even really calling. She's not even saying he should be impeached. She's just saying, let's start proceedings. You know, that's that, that's a long process. It could take a year. Uh, you know, you could look at reasons why evidence, why he should be impeached. She's not saying that, you know, let, yes, Congress should drive him out of Congress, right. out of out of office. But, you know, it's uh, the parallel is um, I was thinking while you were mentioning that nobody has really followed her uh, among the 2020 candidates. When she first mentioned getting rid of the Electoral College, mm-hmm. it was almost like everybody else said, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Good idea. Yeah. Exactly. Got to do it. Got to yeah. do it. Got to do it. Yeah. Uh, this one, not so much. Seems It seems like a hotter issue for a lot of people. And uh, I think... What candidates are also considering is Nancy Pelosi. She's a uh, and and other members of Cong- top members of Congress. She's uh you know for a long time time now said that this isn't the way we should go. That this could backfire, um, severely damage Democrats' chances of retaking Congress, the Senate, and the White House in 2020. Um, so she's been kind of pumping the brakes. And today uh, she's supposed to Congress is on recess. So it's been a little difficult. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for lawmakers to try to organize a response to, the, to this and the Mueller report. Um, today she's convening a, a conference call with her freshman is her, it, her Democratic oh, yeah, class. Is it today? Yeah. Yes, it's yeah. today. It's today. So I think maybe some of the 2020 candidates are waiting to see what how Pelosi's going to handle this before you know getting ahead of her right. on, on impeachment. But her message has been pretty consistent, right? Yes, he's done wrong. He, Trump, has done wrong. Yes, he probably has committed impeachable offenses, but um, we're never going to get him convicted in the Senate. It would occupy every moment of our waking time between now and November 2020. Yeah. And we'd be better off recognizing that the reality is it's not going to happen, so therefore let's focus on the hearings that we can hold and on the 2020 campaign. The other argument that she and other top Democrats have made is that in 2018, the issue on the ballot was not impeachment. You know, Democrats were running right, right. on yes, health care, prescription right. drugs, infrastructure, uh, all these kind of bread and butter issues. Um, you didn't you didn't have this freshman class running on impeachment. Um, so as far as how much they can claim a mandate to go after Trump right now, uh, that's debatable. Um, the man who the candidate who is enjoying the uh, moment right now is Pete Buttigieg. That's right. Mayor Pete, uh, South Bend. Um, peaking too soon? I, I think he's, he's you know, made some comments to the, to the effect that he's a little surprised at how fast he's gotten traction. I don't, I don't think he expected it. And uh, they've had to now, you know, uh, ramp up their campaign, hire a lot of people. That All these steps, things that they, they should have done in the beginning, they just weren't expecting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know whether he's peaking too soon, but it's a little surprising. I'll tell you, he looks good. Yeah. You know, he he he. We've interviewed him here in the studio. Yeah, um, he's very smart. He's very good on the issues. Um, he um, has a great life story, right? Yeah, 
and uh, and he's refreshing. He's from the Midwest, and he's got a lot going for him. Right? Speaks like thirty-seven languages. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. You know, um, I saw that he has uh, um, a big uh, next week, a big uh, fundraising uh, swing in California, mm-hmm. San Diego, Los Angeles, and the San Francisco Bay Area. Yeah. Um, He's getting a lot of people who've uh, already supported even other candidates who just think they're going to help him too because they like him, yeah. want him to do well. Um, I uh, was invited to a fundraising event for him here in Washington by a group of former uh, Barack Obama top fundraisers, uh, mm-hmm. ambass- all appointed ambassadors, yeah. and now are, gather- are convening to... Uh, um, to support Pete Buttigieg, like as the the next Obama, yeah. Uh, so uh, he he's really got some showing some surprising strength. Yeah, is yeah. that is that an endorsement, Bill? No, no, not <laughs> at all. No, uh, no. Uh, I want to make clear it's not. <laughs> but uh, I've been impressed with how well he's done. Yeah, yeah. I think he's impressed a lot of people. I think over the weekend he he held a, an event in New Hampshire, Plymouth, at twelve hundred people. Just just it's amazing for you know. A candidate who came out of nowhere, um, and uh, you know we'll we'll see where he goes. And it's interesting you say he's gotten support from Obama, from former Obama officials. This was supposed to be kind of Beto's. Thing, I know, right. right? He was. People have compared him to Obama. Very charismatic. You know, can really deliver a speech. Um, so it's interesting. It's interesting to see some of that Obama poll going now to. Uh, this 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 question keeps coming up, and I believe it was um, Friday or Saturday, front page of New York Times, uh, or maybe it was yesterday. Is that for a person for a party that did so well in 2018, demonstrably based on the support and the act- actions of women, mm-hmm. particularly women of color? Is the Democratic Party going to step forward in 2020 with a white male at the top of the ticket? <laughs> That's it's a very and, good question. Yeah, and given the fact that there are yeah. women on the on the ticket, and I guess Kamala Harris, the only woman of color, right? right? But but all there are alternatives, right? Yeah. And yeah. yet the last ones we've seen jump in are all white males. Here we are, two white males talking. Yeah. But, uh, and Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, the top of the pack. Yeah. Um, I think what it shows is that the Democratic Party is maybe not as that progressive as it would seem, at least voters. I, I don't know. Um, but is the party or, making a mistake by... You know, there's been a lot of arguments made about, you know, who would be the best... Can- a, lot of, a lot of candidates now are looking at... Or a lot of voters are looking at electability, right? Who's the best person to defeat Trump? And some of those issues of sexism are, are still alive uh, and at play as they consider, um, you know, what would Donald Trump do to Elizabeth Warren if she was the nominee? Mm-hmm. Um, because this, you know, Native American thing that he keeps calling her Pocahontas, um, it has hurt her. She, it's been a distraction for her. She hasn't handled it exactly the right way by doing that DNA test and, and all of that. So um, I, I think some of, some of that may be a factor. I don't know that he's gone out after Kamala Harris yet. Uh, no, I don't think he has. Yeah. But no doubt that he would. Right? <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Right. Well, no, I think it's a legitimate question. I mean, I, I, I don't think the message of 2016 is that you can never win with a woman at the top of the ticket. Mm-hmm. I think women ran a, didn't run a very good campaign. Right. 
Right. Uh, um, but I know there are some Democrats who think that given the electorate uh, in, in voters voting the, the electorate in this country today, that it's still not the time for a woman. Of course, right. people said that about an African American too. So That's right. I re- I reject that. But we actually, I think this. The, the, I also join those who say the, the best candidate is going to be the the one who's the strongest against Donald Trump. Yeah, man, woman, whatever. It's yeah. when you when you talk to people at campaign events, doesn't matter which candidate. That's what that's what people want. Right. So um, CNN tonight <laughs> has not just another town hall. Mm-hmm. They have five of them. <laughs> God. Yeah. Right. <laughs> For those of you who uh, have nothing better to do tonight, <laughs> I will point out that uh, there are seven, five town halls starting at seven o'clock. So I wrote them down here somewhere. At seven o'clock is Amy Klobuchar. Uh, and then, um, what is this? At eight o'clock is Elizabeth Warren. Nine o'clock is Bernie Sanders. Ten o'clock is um, Kamala Harris. Yeah, and then eleven o'clock, Pete Buttigieg. Yeah, people are going to stay up for Pete at eleven. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's interesting they put that one last because yeah. they think he'll have a lot of appeal, right. and he will. Right? This is like. This is like Game of Thrones episode three. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is like they're all going at it right now. Well, what's so what's interesting too is that at least with uh, Amy Klobuchar and Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg, mm-hmm. it's their second CNN town yeah. hall. Yeah, some candidates haven't had one yet, driver. Um, but these these town halls seem to have. Um, not taking the place of the debates, but mm. they've assumed an importance almost as important as the debates in this very early stages. Yeah, in the very early stages, you know, the the DNC has has these rules uh, which candidates must operate by that they cannot take part in in a debate be- prior to right the start yeah. of the, the the DNC debates, which are in June, July, something like that, I believe. Uh huh. Um, it just it gets it earlier every year, <laughs> um, but. June, June's June. the first debate. Yeah, twenty fifth, twenty sixth, I think. And um, it it's some candidates have really shined, others have not. Um, what I found interesting was that Bernie's candidate, it was, it was just sort of kind of like an interview, an hour long interview with Fox News last week, uh, where he he handled himself really well. Um, his campaign was smart enough to pack the room with supporters. Anytime he said anything, they cheered like crazy, which is something that. The president also picked up on when he tweeted about it. He was complaining that. Uh, yeah, I know. And it's surprising that Fox News let him do that yeah. in a sense. I mean, uh, maybe that was part of the deal to have the downtown hall is we get yeah. to pick half the audience or right. th- I, however, what, yeah. whatever, pardon me, percentage of the audience. Usually the network packs the, the, right. the audience with people that they consider to be just. Yeah. Uh, unbiased observers. Yeah, and the, yeah. There, there was a there was a great moment where Brett Baer, the moderator, asked the audience, you know, who would be interested in switching from from their private personal insurance, employer sponsored insurance, health insurance, to uh, a Medicare for all system, government run system, and you see kind of like half, maybe seventy five percent of the room raise their hands, and it's just like <laughs> it's a great mo- moment for Bernie, and I think his campaign did, did a good job. But now you have other candidates also saying, given how well Bernie did. That they're also interested in doing a, a Fox News uh, appearance, which uh, is kind of at odds with Tom Perez, chairman of the DNC, who 
who has made the argument that Fox News as an institution, you know, shouldn't be shouldn't be given access to these to Democratic candidates. Right. Um, we we had the head of the um, war room uh, from the DNC mm-hmm. uh, here in studio last week, and I challenged her on that, and she said, "Look, our position is no." They are too much of a propaganda outfit to merit being able to host a Democratic de- part debate. But we are, we encourage our candidates to get as much exposure as they can <laughs> anywhere they can. Uh, that includes on Fox News. So it's up to them if they want to make an indi- indi- individual appearance yeah. on Fox News. And frankly, I think they're smart to do so for the very simple reason right. that um, they'll get there are more eyeballs there than they would on MSNBC or CNN. Or CNN, yeah. And um, they're not necessarily, most of them are hostile, but there's still some potential there right. to pull off a few people, yeah. right? And, uh, and, and certainly Bernie did not go on Fox and moderate his position <laughs> on any issues. No, he didn't. Um, and I, I think he, he, he was asked about his taxes, yeah, he very smartly turned the question around on Donald Trump's taxes. Right, so. I paid uh, I paid everything I owed yeah. my taxes. Now let's see Donald Trump's yeah. tax returns. Right. right, so it's an interesting time. We'll let you get back on the road here, Igor. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks, Bill. HuffPost, HuffPost, uh, HuffPost.com. And on that note, uh, we wrap up here on this Monday, April twenty second. Uh, the rest of the day is all yours, so make the most of it. Watch that CNN town hall, the town halls tonight, and we'll talk about them tomorrow. This See you then. This is the Bill Press Show.